This is episode number 267, Get Your Sports Nutrition Dialed with Stevie Lynn Smith, Registered Dietitian. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Foods rich in antioxidants are great, particularly vitamin A, C, and E. So we can get a lot of those from fruits and vegetables, getting a variety of colors, you know, vitamin A, you know, thinking about our orange foods, Vitamin C, of course, are citrus foods. Vitamin E, sunflower seed butter is one of my favorites for vitamin E. But basically, I just tell people to look and see like, okay, are we getting in those high quality fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains? Are we getting in enough healthy fats as well, particularly omega-3 fatty acids? You know, if you do eat fish, fatty fish is a great source for, you know, plant-based athletes and individuals, usually walnuts, flax seeds. Those are some of my big go-tos for those individuals. But just looking at diet quality, nutrient density. And also we talk about sports nutrition quite a bit on this podcast because many of you are athletes or you just like to exercise. And whether you identify as an athlete or somebody that just likes to exercise, in my opinion, if you exercise, you are an athlete. Learning more about how to optimize your nutrition so that you can feel best whenever you are out there doing your sport is super key. Thank you to those of you who have rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast. That really helps other people find the show. And if you haven't, just take a quick second and head over to wherever you like listening to podcasts and leave us a quick review. We really would appreciate it. We also really appreciate it when you share the show with your friends as word of mouth is pretty much the best way for other people to find the podcast. And these amazing guests donate their time. And it's so great whenever other people get to hear their stories and learn from them too. I'm so glad that those of you subscribed to my newsletter are enjoying it. You can get that at sonyalooney.com newsletter, where every Monday I send out a research topic on mindset and motivation. And this week was about habits, and it was about how to make sure that if you miss a habit, it doesn't turn into all or none thinking. Like those of us who sometimes are trying to eat super clean for even a short period of time, and you, quote, have a slip up, and then you decide that the rest of the day you're just going to eat whatever you want. How do you avoid that type of mindset? Or if you just start getting out of the habit of something, how do you get back in? So that was what this week's newsletter was about. And I hope you'll enjoy the ones coming up in the future as well. And you can get that at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. I put a lot of time and energy into writing the newsletter. So I am trying to grow my email list. So if you are enjoying it, also please share that with your friends too. All right. So let's get into today's awesome guest, Stevie Lynn Smith. Stevie Lynn is a sports nutrition specialist, a marathon runner, an Ironman triathlete, and an adventurer. And she knows that nutrition is a critical piece of success. And that's something that I also have thought about a lot and put a lot of effort to in my career as an ultra endurance athlete and just uh, in an effort to be a healthy human. And in this week's podcast, we talked about all things sports nutrition. Stevie Lynn Smith has her own company, Nutrition Wellness Consulting, and she also 
writes and works for Inside Tracker. And I'm sure you've heard of Inside Tracker if you've been listening to this podcast. And she's also contributed to Runner's World magazine, Outside Magazine, Bicycling Magazine, and Triathlete Magazine. So you might guess that she knows a thing or two about preparing your body for an endurance event. And because Stevie Lynn works for Inside Tracker, I thought that we would get into some of the common biomarkers that athletes test for in the Inside Tracker tests, how to lower your cortisol, everything you need to know about iron. We talked about supplement safety because there's a lot of questions about supplements and is generally an unregulated industry, and also how to make sure that you're absorbing your supplements. We talked about inflammation versus anti-inflammation and focusing on sports nutrition. And we also talked about weight loss and knowing how much to eat because a lot of endurance athletes are trying to lean out, but also if you are too focused on leaning out, you can compromise your performance. If after listening to this, you're like, yeah, I'm really interested in learning more about my body and my biomarkers, we are offering a 25% off discount for all Inside Tracker tests. So just go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off everything that they offer. They measure a ton of different biomarkers, things like cortisol, inflammation, magnesium, vitamin D. They check your liver enzymes so much. And even just having a good baseline and knowing where your body is at today is a really great way to try to feel your best and also to perform better. Inside Tracker also offers a DNA kit so that you can learn about your genetic potential. And they test up to 261 genetic markers. And they also report wellness traits and risks. Inside Tracker also has a ton of free information on their website. And in fact, Stevie Lynn has her own column called the Inside Guide. Some of Stevie's recent posts on her column are how to prioritize performance and longevity in endurance sports, talking about plant-based diets, talking about how gut health affects uh, athletic performance. So there's a lot of different topics to cover. Health is a lot more than just exercising and eating well. And as a health coach, that's something that I work on with my clients a lot. And it's a great reminder that what you do, your daily habits, and the things that you pay attention to build your foundation. And that is going to be a topic of next week's podcast. So secret, secret, there's a little spoiler alert for next week. So go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get your 25% off anything that they offer. And let me know how it goes. I've had a lot of you tried out and have been happy with your results and happy with the things that you've learned. So here we go. Here is Stevie Lynn Smith. Stevie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sonia. Thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you again because you and I have actually gone over some of my inside tracker blood test results, which we'll talk about later. And I'm excited to get to pick your brain for the listener now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to share. And it was great to chat with you too. And I hope that uh, you've been working hard on those biomarkers, your homework. <laughs> that's right. Homework is always a good thing. We always are, learn yeah. homework is bad, but that's the fun part, right? Exactly. It's like a little bit of self-experimenting too when you have that blood data. So speaking of homework, you have quite a bit of um, interesting educational background. So can you talk about your just your background a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a registered dietitian, which you might see people floating around with the credentials registered dietitian nutritionist. Same thing. Those two can be used interchangeably. So I did my bachelor's of science in dietetics and nutrition at SUNY Buffalo State, where I also completed 
you know, I, I explain it as like a baby residency because people can really relate to doctor's residencies. Dietitians, registered dietitians, one of the things that sets us apart from some of the other nutrition credentials that you might see floating about is that we do have to do 1,200 hours of supervised practice. So for me, that was a lot of hospital rotations. We also have to then sit for a board exam to get that RD or RDN credential. And then there's lots of other things you can do as a dietitian. So I did that. And then I worked for six years as a clinical dietitian in a hospital in DC. And then I decided to get my master's in applied nutrition with a sports nutrition concentration from Northeastern. So I have that. And then last year, 2020, I sat for my board exam in sports nutrition. So the CSSD credential is just like another specialty, kind of like doctors have specialties, right? (laughs) So that is, uh, allows me to call myself a sports dietitian or a sports, you know, registered dietitian nutritionist. So another exam. (laughs) It sounds like there's a lot of opportunities and homework with being a registered dietitian. And actually, I'm not a registered dietitian at all. But out of curiosity, I've actually looked into that CSSD I can never say the word right. Accreditation. Is that the right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Accreditation. I know it's a mouthful. A lot of C's yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, there's so much respect for all the work that you've done and the 1200 hours of supervised, you know, work. And that that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot of chemistry, but you know, <laughs> at least undergrad was a lot of chemistry, but it's totally worth it. And then you know, to be an RD, we have to do, you know, a certain number of continuing education hours every five years. And then to keep my CSSD credential, I have to take that board exam every five years, which is great because, you know, the thing about nutrition is that it's always changing. As we all know, I feel like there's something new every day. Uh, So I feel like a lot of dietitians are already, you know, trying to stay ahead on reading the new research. And on top of it, that that continue education, you're kind of already like have to do it to stay in the know with clients and everybody asking you questions. So it's, it's fun to keep learning and keep growing. And, you know, a big thing is having an open mind, an open educated mind. (laughs) Yeah. And something that I think is really great, especially now is that people are taking a lot of, or they have a lot of autonomy around their health. And people are realizing that nutrition and the things that you eat have a massive impact on anything from lifestyle diseases to performance to sleep. And I think it used to be you would just outsource all that to your doctor and just assume your doctor knows everything. Mm -hmm. And you worked in the clinical setting as well. So yeah, doctors are amazing and we need doctors, but doctors are not registered dietitians. No, they're not. I mean, lots of amazing doctors. I learned so much from some of the doctors I worked with in the hospital. But I, I found that the doctors I learned the most from had no like hesitations with asking either myself or other dietitians like, hey, I have this patient. Can you help them? Because, you know, it's it's kind of like everything in life, right? You dele- we, we would hope <laughs> that you delegate to the experts, right? It's okay to learn and educate yourself that at a point, there's a time to delegate, like, taxes, you know, since I've become a business owner, I'm like, I am an accountant. I'm not even going to try. (laughs) I have my accountant do my taxes because he's an expert. It's just like attorneys, everything else, you know, at a point you can only do, you can do a certain amount and definitely advocate and take control of your health. I've, 
always, you know, especially being in the hospital setting and dealing with some autoimmune issues myself, I find it's very important to make sure that your voice is heard as an individual. But there is a point sometimes where we do need to delegate for some help from experts. So what made you decide to focus on sports? Because that's a lot of extra things that you've done. A lot of extra education. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny because when I look back, I never planned on being a sports dietitian. Like, you know, I know a lot of dietitians or nutrition students right now. They're like, oh, I want to be a sports dietitian. I want to work with athletes. Kind of like a little bit more glamorous than working in a hospital or a food service or the other hundreds of settings that dietitians work in. I just, it just kind of happens. I've been an athlete my whole life. I played soccer and lacrosse growing up. I played lacrosse for a season in college at the division three level. And then after I retired from that, I, I learned how to swim and started running again. And eventually that very quickly turned into a marathon, into an Ironman and (sighs) (laughs) it escalated quickly. And then kind of once I was in the endurance world for a while, I kind of started to get some sports nutrition gigs. And while that was kind of happening, I was reading all of the things and trying to learn all the things. Because of course, I have a ton of nutrition knowledge from school, but there, you know, in my program, at least there was no sports nutrition rotation in my, you know, clinical rotations or no sports nutrition class. So I was educating myself and then gaining experience from other sports dietitians. And then uh, there was a point where I just kind of decided to take that leap and see if I could kind of put myself 100% in the sports world. And here we are. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like number one, you like type two fun. Yes. (laughs) And you also, yeah, you're like a common trait that I've noticed amongst podcast guests is curiosity and love of learning. And it sounds like you have Mm -hmm. both of those in spades. Yes. Yes. Lots of type two fun. (laughs) (laughs) Even school type two fun. Exactly. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) I recently wrote an article for one of my sponsors, Goo Energy Labs, where I Uh interviewed a couple of sports dietitians, asking them what their their common myths were that they would come up with in their clients and in their research. Mm -hmm. And they told me some of theirs. What is one or two sports nutrition myths that you commonly come up against? And what is the actual like research behind the, the quote truth. <laughs> the quote truth. Yeah. So, oh man, what are some of the biggest ones that I come up with? Um, a lot of my clients don't come at me with a lot of like really kind of out of left field myths, to be honest. A lot of what I see though, is a lot of resistance around fueling and what we should be using for fueling and fasted workouts. Like fasted cardio is something I see a lot of people coming at me with and kind of restricting their fueling in hopes to change their body weight or body composition is a big thing I see because basically a lot of individuals see it as like empty or unneeded calories or just sugar and sugar is bad kind of thought process. So I don't know if it's like, that's like a full, like it's, it's not really a simple sentence myth, but it seems to kind of be where there is that most kind of resistance. And I spend a lot of time talking about carbs. <laughs> we want to eat these carbs before our workouts and during our workouts and kind of just the thought process of, you know, the people who don't train with fuel and then they go out and do their first race and they drink all this Gatorade and they say, Gatorade makes me sick. 
Um, <laughs> while some people do have issues with fructose, which is in Gatorade, it's not everybody. And it's actually a very small amount of people who have issues digesting and processing that fructose. <laughs> it's more of that. They literally never trained with Gatorade and then tried to drink four bottles while exercising. And exercising, of course, does change how our body you know, utilizes energy, digests food, breaks it down, et cetera. So there's a concept of called training the gut, being able to, obviously we need those carbohydrates, those calories, that energy while we're training anyway. So we can have an awesome training session, but also kind of just like we train our cardiovascular system to do, you know, the type two funds, we should also be training the gut so we can tolerate sports fuels on race day, at, at the same race day intensity, you know, I see a lot of people try to work around that one because the intensity is also going to play in, you know, on how your body is going to break down and process that nutrition you take in. But also, you know, it's a great spot to find what sports fuels or if you want to go a real food kind of fueling route, what works for you? Because I'm sure you and I, Sonia, have different fueling plans and strategies and that's okay. So I would say that's probably the biggest thing I find the most resistance with from my clients. Yeah, I think that people think that there's just a one recipe that works for everybody. And this has been what everybody, all the all the experts I've talked to have said, hey, look, like there's a baseline that you can start with, but then you have to figure out what works for you because everybody, yeah. like even like myself versus somebody else on a race course, the intensity that we can hold might be different. So the way that you yeah. fuel might be different. And yeah, what, what came up with those interviews was exactly what you said. It was okay. pe people are unsure or have resistance to eating carbohydrate, especially mm -hmm. um, a more refined carb carbohydrate in some cases while you're actually mm -hmm. exercising and yeah. that you need to fuel yourself early and often whenever you're out doing endurance sports and other sports. Yeah. And I, th I think that there's a lot of confusion out there because people will see other people who are like fat adapted athletes yeah. and there are people that do that but i think that that is not the norm and i don't know much about fat adapted athletes so maybe you can shed some light on that yeah with the fat adapted athletes i mean at a point you can gain some of that you know adaptation but there is also you know it's only going to get you so far basically you know, you, you can't do the whole race, however long it is endurance wise without carbohydrates. And I find a lot of those people that they come in so low that they're already at a huge deficit when they're then trying to add the carbohydrates in that it's kind of, I've seen it <laughs> go very poorly in some athletes. And also at that point, then it, it goes back to they're not really training with those sports fuels. So then they try to take them on race day and it doesn't, it doesn't go well. I've seen a couple of people try to do it in a full iron man. And I felt very badly because <laughs> yeah. it did not end well for them. <laughs> yeah. Pra practice, you know, eat in your training, what you're eating on race day. And the same goes for like what your breakfast is and don't try anything new on race day. I, I know some of us, I've done that before and I don't yeah. recommend that at all. <laughs> Yeah, you know, sometimes it happens. <laughs> we hope it doesn't happen, right? But it's also the people that, I mean, and this is just my personal opinion as a sports dietitian who want to do all liquid nutrition in an Ironman. 
And like, I understand like the, the thought process behind it, right? Liquid is already very easily digested, right? It's, it's not going to be like having a solid or chews or a gel, but I've seen so many bottles fly off the back of bikes in an Ironman. And then some people saying, well, I lost 500 calories on the bike because my bottle flew off the back. And then, you know, if you come off that bike behind, then you're not really going to have a lot to show for on the run. That's one of the big things that always makes me feel very, it makes me like kind of like cringe when I see those bottles fly off. (laughs) Yeah. And another thing that you mentioned was people doing fasted workouts because they want to change their body composition or they want to lose weight. And I have a two part kind of comment and question around this is number one, does that work? And number two, a lot of times people will say, well, I'm, I'm running 20 miles a week or, or 20, 20 miles at a time. I'm running like 50 miles a week or I'm exercising, you know, 15 hours, 10 hours a week and mm-hmm. I'm not losing weight. And they try and exercise their way out of uh, into weight loss. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Can you can you like comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with the fasted workouts, I know some athletes really struggle eating first thing in the morning, especially if they're the crew that gets up at three 30 to work out in the four o'clock hour. Um, and for the most part, for those people, I try to at least get them have some sports drinking. Uh, I always tell people a little bit of carb is better than no carb. Um, and for people who struggle to eat a lot of volume in the morning, we make sure the night before is a pretty solid meal. Um, but for the most part, when we're looking at people who are doing it with the intentions of losing weight, changing body composition, it kind of works against them because fasting, under eating, under fueling can increase cortisol levels. It is a stress state for the body. So like you said, the, the, the comment on people who try are like, oh, well, I run 20 miles a week and you know, 20 miles a time, 50 miles a week. And they're trying to over-exercise themselves into losing weight, they end up more often than not putting themselves in this high stress state from under-fueling. And when cortisol levels are elevated, weight gain is one of the consequences of it. You know, unstable blood sugars is another thing, changes, like I said, to your body composition. So it kind of is counterintuitive when people are like, oh, well, I only eat 1500 calories a day. Why am I not losing weight? It's because they're so woefully under fueling that they're putting their body into a stress state. Yeah. And I think this brings up the next question is like, how do you know how much to eat? Because a lot of times people are like, well, I feel like I'm eating too much or, or maybe I'm eating too little, but I feel like I'm eating enough. So like, how do you know how much to eat? Yeah. So it's a great, it's a great question. And it, it's something that people, I think, sometimes feel badly when I work with them one-on-one that they're under eating unintentionally. But I feel like as a culture, we're not really taught to eat enough, right? It's always everything like, oh, eat less, you know, don't eat this, don't eat that, cut this out. That like, I never, ever blame anybody for not knowing how much they should eat. So basically, though, to answer your question, I typically, for like an endurance athlete who's training, I tend to not ever want to see anyone under 2000 calories a day, like bare minimum females, males, I say usually 22 to 2,500, 22 being like the very low end um, for an active male. And that's just kind of a, a general rule of thumb. Of course, like if someone's training a ton, it's going to go higher, but 
I see a lot of people coming in at 1200, 1300, 1500, 1800 calories a day. And that's even for males. And that's not nearly enough. (laughs) So those are kind of at least just like a very general rule of thumb. Of course, smaller people, you know, you're going to need a little bit less than larger people. And then taking into account different kind of factors like training load, training intensity, et cetera. Yeah. And like if you're tired or if you're not recovering and this is a, a recurring thing, then mm-hmm. put, more, put more on your plate. But I think the yeah. reason why we're taught like, hey, restrict, restrict, restrict is because, well, number one, the media, especially if you're a female, is it's, it's always telling you that you need to be smaller and you're not good enough and all these things. But also like a lot of the standard foods that go on people's plate are highly processed foods that are nu- nutritionally bankrupt. Yep. So if you're adding in and eating lots of foods that are whole foods that have a good source of mm-hmm. nutrients, um, you know, chances are that that's actually those, those calories you're putting in are going to actually help you go faster and help you sleep better and help you just thrive and maybe even bring that cortisol down. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I, you made me think of it when you said nutrient bankrupt foods, it also, what I see a lot of people is like, oh, I just fill up on salads and lots of steamed vegetables. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I like it when people eat vegetables, but for athletes, I see a lot of people eating. Yeah, it's got, it's got nutrients. You know, there is a lot of good quality in a salad, you know, depending on what, you know, what kind of greens you're eating, what you're putting on it, et cetera. But it also takes up a lot of volume that doesn't leave space for some of those more dense, really nourishing foods. So a lot of my clients will say, where are the carbs on your salad? Like, give me some grains, some beans, potatoes, etc." So a lot of people who are under eating, under fueling tend to fill up on those like very big plates of salads and veggies. <laughs> I'm so glad that you brought that up because a lot of people, I'm a plant-based athlete. A lot of people that mm-hmm. listen are, cur- are plant curious. And yeah. one of the biggest, I think, problems amongst people, who, especially who want to eat even people that just want to eat more plant-based is that they do mm-hmm. exactly what you said. Like they want, they have all, all the best intentions, yep. but they don't get enough calories. And like you said, like whole grains are really good for you. Beans are really good for you. And mm-hmm. what, whatever, you know, diet that you're eating, like just trying to eat a balanced amount of the foods on your plate. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, the salad can still be there. I just want it to be a smaller little square on your plate. Rather than yeah, especially whole. the night before an event. <laughs> yes. Yes. I know. I think about it. I'm like, Ooh, that can't, that wouldn't sit well. <laughs> so we um, started talking about cortisol a little bit mm-hmm. and you work with Inside Tracker, and Inside Tracker has been a podcast sponsor and supporter of this show. So I really was excited to get to chat with you to go more into detail on some of the biomarkers um, that can be tested on an Inside Tracker blood test. And I've been using Inside Tracker since 2017, and I've, you know, especially as a, a plant-based athlete in person, like mm-hmm. of, of course for years I had I've been doing this since 2013. I've had doubts and things like that, and being able mm-hmm. to just check and make sure that I'm doing the right things and get that confirmation has been awesome. Um, And also just people who are like, maybe they just feel off and like a a normal, like family doctor, like this isn't really in their wheelhouse, like this type Mm -hmm. of performance nutrition. So can you talk about like how you got involved with Inside Tracker and kind of the bottom line as to why people do these tests? Yeah, absolutely. I have actually been an Inside Tracker user since 2016. So I started just a little bit before you. Um, I started... I learned about it from Twitter, I think. Um, And uh, at that point, I was really uh, deep into my full Ironman career. Um, 
what, 2016, I think I had done, I don't know, five or six, six at that point, five or six full Ironmans. Wow. Um, I did 10 between 2012 and 2019. Um, so 2016 was the year I started the year before I started toying with a double Ironman season. Um, and so, yes, I did that a couple of years. Uh, so inside tracker was a very, uh, remarkably helpful tool for the amount of training I was doing with all of that long distance racing, just a lot of training, long distance swimming, all of it, marathons, ultra marathon. So I also, as a dietitian and an athlete, I fell in love with it. And then in 2018, um, I interviewed and started working with Inside Tracker. Um, it was it was kind of nice and a great opportunity. I mean, at that point, I knew everything about Inside Tracker already inside and out. Obviously, very strongly believe in it. Um, it definitely helped me survive and thrive during those double Ironman seasons, which led me to PR my full Ironman distance and be able to like manage having a full-time job, a part-time job and all of the trainings, <laughs> very firm believer in it. And I just love, you know, as a company watching us grow as the science changes and always evolving and, you know, seeing how we can help people. Like you said, you know, this is your traditional doctor relationship wouldn't look at nearly as many biomarkers as we do, but also in the kind of the view we take at these biomarkers, you know, regular lab testing with your doctor, you get the reference ranges for, you know, a very large group of people. And then they're really just looking like, are you sick or are you not sick with a chronic disease? Basically with inside tracker, it's, it's much more personalized and defined to each of us as individuals, but also looking at, hey, you're probably, you know, pretty healthy if you're training for an Ironman and, you know, doing all this racing, long distance racing, how can we take you from good to great, really, is what the ranges for the biomarkers that we look at kind of speaks to. Yeah, and I love that it's good to great. And it's also that people have that control in their training and in their lives, in most cases, mm -hmm. to be able to, yes. like, change their lifestyle a little bit to, you know, have an optimized zone using <laughs> the terminology and inside tracker. Yeah. So what are like, what are some common biomarkers that are out of range that you see for endurance athletes? Yeah. So one of the big ones is vitamin D, but that is also across the board inside tracker users definitely tend to see a lot of unoptimized vitamin D zones, which to me as a dietitian, I'm like, well, this is kind of like an easy fix, right? <laughs> we know it's very hard to get vitamin D from food sources. So usually it's one of, if someone has a low level, it's one of, I don't even hesitate supplement right away just to get that number up. I also see people who are taking supplements, but they're just not taking a vitamin D supplement correctly. You know, it's one of the ones that we want to take with food, a meal or a snack that contains fat so that your body is properly absorbing it. So kind of a less exciting one, but definitely one I always see to be an issue. I see a lot of high cortisol. I know we already briefly talked about that, you know, usually for a number of reasons, but I find a lot of endurance athletes are just doing a lot of things. We all have a lot of, we're, we tend to be a little bit more on the type A personality side. I mean, I will, I will speak, to, I will throw myself under that, <laughs> into that category. So, you know, whether we're, 
you know, we're training for whatever race or events. And then we have a family, we have work commitments, school, community, et cetera, that we put a lot of pressure and stress on ourselves. Like I said, I know a lot of athletes are doing that 4am wake up, you know, sleep tends to be sacrificed as well. So, you know, that one is usually just kind of figuring out how can we balance all of that stress kind of in the, in the stress bucket, you know, where can we be a little bit kinder to ourselves? A lot of people who I work with who are just runners, you know, maybe it's working in, you know, more low impact activities and cutting down on some of the running intensity and running days. You know, there are some supplements, adaptogen, namely ashwagandha, that can help reduce cortisol levels as well. That works for a lot of athletes. Sometimes it's just kind of revisiting to see where we're at. I mean, personally, if I have a high cortisol and a low ferritin, I will put myself in a running timeout and take, you know, at least a week off of running. Because I know personally, (laughs) I cannot run myself out of those ferritin. I know I just mentioned that's another big one. That's the stored form of iron. So it really gives us an accurate picture of an individual's iron status. This number will drop before hemoglobin does because your doctor usually only tests hemoglobin unless they know you you have a good relationship with your doctor or they know you have a history of anemia or iron deficiency. So those two things, you know, at least for me, it's it's very hard to continue to train and feel, feel well and bring those numbers back up. Yeah, with the ferritin and the iron, I actually, this is something that you and I um, had mm-hmm. talked about because like I always have a good level of ferritin and iron storage. My hemoglobin is usually pretty good. There's been, I'm looking at my inside tracker results right now, yeah. all the data points. Sometimes the hemoglobin's a little bit low, but my um, blood iron, and these are all things that everybody would get if they did a test, you would actually mm-hmm. get access to these details. My blood iron is high pretty frequently. And I thought, well, my ferritin is good. My hemoglobin is low, but my blood iron is high. So what does that mean? Yeah. So typically, are you taking a supplement right now? If you don't mind me asking. Oh, uh, well, I take a multivitamin that has iron in it, like not a non-heme iron, but that's pretty much it. Okay. So the thing with serum iron is it does fluctuate daily. So it can go up and down. That's why we look at that ferritin. That's kind of our accurate picture. If people are are supplementing with iron, I do look at serum iron and transferrin saturation to see, okay, is their body absorbing all the iron that they're taking? Because you'll notice a lot of the iron on the shelf that you can just buy at the store is like 65, 80 milligrams. And all of our recommendations, if you are, if it is a recommendation for you to take an iron supplement, we start at 14 milligrams and we won't recommend over 25 milligrams just because your body can only absorb so much. And a lot of times with iron, whether we're taking a supplement or not, it's looking at how we can optimize our absorption, which is kind of like a very delicate tango. I feel like you're always kind of dancing around like, okay, like how do I time this iron rich meal? You know, I can't have this too close to my coffee because, you know, (laughs) the tannins in the coffee are going to inhibit some of the absorption, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, yeah. that's the, that's the fun game of iron. <laughs> yeah. And I also think this is interesting and I haven't read the current research on this. So you have, you'll, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but heme iron, like your body can't get rid of it except through bleeding. Whereas like non-heme iron, I think, can your body get rid of that on its own or it just doesn't absorb it if it doesn't need it's, it? Yeah. It's not absorbed. 
as efficiently as your heme iron. Yep. Yeah. So like you can overdo it if you're taking heme iron and you're eating lots of, you know, food that has heme iron in it and you can overdo the amount of iron and that causes oxidation. Yep. Do you guys see that? Like, or is it usually a deficiency? For the most part, it's deficiency. Um, I have had uh, some people come in and they're just taking way, way too much iron, but typically it's people are on the lower end and not Mm -hmm. over supplementing more often than not. Yeah. The supplementation thing is really interesting because a lot of people are afraid of supplements because number one, it's, it's relatively unregulated and there is the NSF certification. It's, it's called NSF, right? When it's certification. Yeah. There's NSF certified for sport. Yep. And then there's one, uh, USP, which is not, you know, for athletes, usually I tell people to do NSF or certified for sport. Yep. Yeah. And that, that protects you hopefully from getting, you know, contamination. So if you, if you mm-hmm. are te- being tested for doping, you don't test positive from a supplement that you are taking. Yep. But yeah, if Absolutely. you go to the store, I think this is a good time to bring up just how to buy supplements in general, because like I kind of have the go-to brands that I go to because those have been recommended by experts like you or other people, but there's like so many different brands of supplements on the shelf, all different prices. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you know what supplements to get? Yeah, great question. So if you test with Inside Tracker, <laughs> anywhere there's a supplement recommended, we there's a nice little drop down that says show more. We will tell you the dose to take, how to take it, like I mentioned, how to take vitamin D, anything you need to know about the supplement. But we also have recommended brands that our science team has pulled, you know, it's usually two for each recommended supplement. So it helps kind of cut down that noise. You can always go to a site called labdoor.com. So that's like L-A-B-D-O-O-R.com. And that will give you insights. Um, It's all third-party testing and grading on different supplements. So you can say like, my brother will text me like, oh, this is at Costco. Is this fish oil good? And I'll just like go to Labdoor quick and like look at the brand and I'll give it like a grade, like an A, B, C, D etc. So I find that to be a very helpful resource if there is something else you're looking for. But Nature Made is usually pretty good. Now Foods is another one. NSF-wise, Thorn has a lot of great quality products, as does Clean. Those are kind of some of the go-tos. I don't have any affiliations with any of them. So I just look for something that, like you said, is going to be like a safe and useful product for sure. So the next question I have is about inflammation, H- HSCRP, and inflammation is part of being an athlete and recovering. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, like what do you see with the C-reactive protein and the inflammation markers amongst athletes in general? Yeah, that's a great question. For the most part, I tend to see with athletes, they might just be like a touch outside of that optimized zone like in the 1.0, 1.2. So a little bit of that low-grade inflammation, but nothing terribly super high or super concerning. I do, with those athletes, do recommend that we do focus on dropping that down into the green optimized zone. For HSCRP, it's usually a pretty tight zone for levels of inflammation to keep it in check. You know, some people will be talking and I'll see an HSCRP of four, which is very high Mm. for people who are not so familiar with the ranges. And they'll be like, oh, well, I had like an Achilles injury or I was sick 
you know, before this test. And that can spike that marker. You know, some people actually tested like the day after their COVID vaccines and their numbers were (laughs) very high, which is expected, right? Because it's an inflammatory response in the body. So if there's an illness or an injury, we will expect to see that bite, that spike up, which isn't really the worst thing because it shows that your body is responding to said illness, said injury, said vaccine, et cetera. And that's what you want. You want that inflammatory response, but of course we don't want it sitting high all the time. We'll also see this in athletes spike after races, very hard efforts. There are runners that this number will be elevated for up to seven days after a marathon, the event, and then it should start to drop back down towards normal ranges. Back before I started working for Inside Tracker, I did... (laughs) test two days after one of my full Ironmans, that double Ironman season. I did like Placid in July, Louisville in October, and my HSCRP spiked to 19, which is very high. (laughs) So there was a lot of recovery after that season for sure. But I did it just to kind of see like, I want to see like what this Ironman, you know, in the two days after. So, you know, we knew it would be elevated because it was in that seven day window, um, which that was pretty interesting to see. Yeah, I've, I've done a test. It was after I did the Cape Epic. It was like two or three days after and I had flown all the way across the world. I landed and the next day I took a test yeah. just because I wanted to see like, what does my body look like when I'm at my absolute most wrecked point? And I was mm-hmm. actually, it was, it was not nearly as bad as I was expecting. <laughs> That's um, good. Yeah. But so coming back to inflammation, yes. what are some of your favorite anti-inflammatory foods that you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. So of course, foods rich in antioxidants are great particularly vitamin A, C, and E. So we can get a lot of those from fruits and vegetables, getting a variety of colors, you know, vitamin A, you know, thinking about our orange foods, vitamin C, of course, our citrus foods, vitamin E, sunflower seed butter is one of my favorites for vitamin E. But basically, I just tell people to look and see like, okay, are we getting in those high quality fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains? Are we getting in enough healthy fats as well, particularly omega-3 fatty acids? You know, if you do eat fish, fatty fish is a great source for, you know, plant-based athletes and individuals, usually walnuts, flax seeds. Those are some of my big go-tos for those individuals. But just looking at diet quality, nutrient density, of course, I love a good ice cream cone and sprinkles, but looking and being like, okay, where can I kind of where have I had a little bit too much of those like refined sugars and I love red wine, but I know I mentioned auto, I think I briefly mentioned autoimmune disease, but now since I've been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, when I eat those foods, I I feel it and, you know, I'll feel it a little bit in my hands and like not everybody gets that feedback. Of course I get that Mm -hmm. feedback, but it's, it's more of those foods that I'm like, okay, (laughs) Mm -hmm. time to, time to get a little bit more of the, the nourishing foods in. So those are the the big things. There's really not, you know, any like superfood per se, but just Mm -hmm. going back and looking like, okay, am I eating enough? Am I eating enough of those like whole quality foods kind of doing that check-in? Yeah, maybe after a highly stressful situation for your body, um, mm-hmm. just adding in a little bit more of those for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, still enjoying exactly. your ice cream and your wine in moderation because yes. we're humans and, you know, nobody's like here to be eating this like 100% perfect diet on paper. Right. I know. I, I always <laughs> think about my Instagram story and I was like, 
you know, this past weekend I went paddleboarding, then I had nachos, like this huge <laughs> plate of nachos. And then, you know, Sunday it was like ice cream and ribs. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> and I'm always like posting it. I was like, I promise I eat vegetables. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Like years ago, I was actually a beer, like a craft beer writer. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. And I would write about beer and it would be like, you know, it, I'd do it for some of the cycling publications and I'd post mm-hmm. about it. And then people thought that I like drank all the time. And it was so funny because I was like, well, no, like I, I sample it, but I'm not like getting wasted and I'm not even drinking beer every day. But because right. I would post about it, people literally thought that I was just drinking all this beer. So that was a wake up call. Like, oh, I should probably be careful about what I post because people are going to read into it. Right. Don't worry. I made some great ratatouille yesterday and uh, I posted that. All right. (laughs) So you talked about fat and I think that fat is something that a lot of athletes are afraid of and avoid because they're afraid of gaining weight or they're, or not losing weight. Mm -hmm. What shows up in the biomarkers if somebody's not eating enough healthy fats? Like what shows up as a, a deficiency? Yeah, that is a great question. And typically tend to see that in the testosterone group or the hormones basically mm. as you know kind of where that manifests of course for female athletes i do like to just make a little pointer that if you are on oral contraceptives or have ever been on oral contraceptives this group will be skewed by oral contraceptive use even in the past just wow. by the nature yeah so it's kind of like it's a little bit hard like if you're on birth control shbg which is a sex hormone carrier that is high because basically you're flooding your body with hormones. Your body's going to give it more SHBG to bind to it. Um, And DHEAS, which is a sex hormone precursor, this is a marker we test in place of estrogen because it won't fluctuate with your cycle, right? It's hard enough to like find a rest aid to, to like test on and et cetera, et cetera. So we don't make females track your cycle to kind of get accurate, stable numbers. And your body uses DGS to make different sex hormones, including estrogen. But if, like I said, with the hormonal birth control, if you're on it, or even if there's been past use, you're giving your body extra hormones. So it's not using the DGAS. So this number tends to be lower. So just kind of a little pointer that, you know, this DHS number is what I look at to see like, are we getting enough of those healthy fats? We need fat to produce those hormones. But again, the hormone just as like a little note, I like people to know that that can skew it as well. SHBG tends to go high in males when they aren't eating enough as well. Same with some of the testosterone levels for the male athletes. We will see those off too. Mm-hmm. Yep. So DHEAS, which if mm-hmm. someone does one of these tests, they can look, that's kind of the pool that makes all these other sex hormones. Yep, exactly. And what happens yep. if that number is high? So when DHEAS is high, we typically, it tends to, you should get a flag to talk to your provider. It can indicate some potential medical diagnosis or something that needs clinical intervention. Hmm. Yep. Got- Okay. Yeah. I usually send people to their OBGYN if that, if that number is high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'm just kind of scrolling through here. Um, yeah. What about some of the more insidious things like cholesterol and like things that might be high or low and you don't, you can't really feel it. Yeah. Cholesterol levels, the lipid panel. I see a lot of athletes with unoptimized lipid panels. Some of it is, you know, we can identify as more of a genetic tie 
I see, do see a lot of, a lot of those athletes who try to go skew on the other side of things and go more low carb, high fat, definitely have seen that impact cholesterol levels as well in the negative way, elevate them because, well, you know, one of the biggest things we can do to help reduce our cholesterol levels is make sure that we're getting enough soluble fiber. And if you're cutting out things like whole grains and legumes and like going very high fat, low carb, you will miss out on a lot of that really awesome fiber. So I tend to see that a lot um, with some of those athletes who are anti-carb or not eating enough of them. Yeah. Fiber is your friend. And you said soluble fiber. What is insoluble? Like what's the difference between soluble and insoluble for people who might not know? Yeah. Of course, all fiber <laughs> is important, but soluble fiber dissolves in water. Insoluble fiber does not dissolve in water. So they both have very important benefits. So most of your plants are going to contain both of these, but in different amounts. As soluble fiber dissolves, it creates kind of like a gel and it can help improve digestion. Like I said, help to reduce blood cholesterol levels, can also help reduce blood sugar levels. Insoluble fiber attracts water into your stool or your poop, basically to make it softer and easier to go to the bathroom. So again, both are very important. They serve their own purposes, but that soluble fiber in particular for cholesterol levels and also blood sugar management as well. Yeah. So feeding the microbiome mm -hmm. and also being able to poop, which is very, very important. And especially before a race. Yeah. Something that we hopefully all like to do because it feels good. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I had this really awesome uh, gastroenterologist, Dr. Bolsowitz on the show. And he always talked like if you follow his Instagram, he's always talking about poop and what your poop should look like. And yeah. like adults really talk about that. I have a toddler who we're okay. going to potty train at some like he's only 18 months, but yeah, that's going to be something we probably are going to start talking about a lot pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always joke and like, I didn't realize it until I worked in the hospital. I was like, wow, a big chunk of my job is talking to people about their poop. And some of my <laughs> patients used to love talking about their poop. And I was like, okay, here, here we are. <laughs> so you and I talked about how we have actually done an inside tracker test, like right after a really strenuous event. Mm -hmm. But when is the best time? I mean, it's about testing you know, changing some things up and retesting to see if what you're doing is working, but when is the best time to do a test? That's a great question. I think it's very valuable, especially for athletes, very active people to to do a test kind of at the end of your off season, start of your season. I like to call it like a baseline test. So we can see where our numbers are at after we hopefully take in an off season, given our bodies a little bit of a break from the training got more sleep, reduced stress, et cetera. Um, kind of see where the baseline is as you start your season and see where you can make those adjustments going into, you know, bigger training blocks, training season, et cetera. You know, I always think it's good to check in, you know, halfway through your season. Maybe if you know you're going to have a big event coming up in like six weeks to kind of check in, is there some fine tuning I can do? in these last six weeks of training. Because at that point, you're kind of seeing, okay, my body's under this stress. Am I recovering? You know, there's biomarkers that will show muscle damage, muscle breakdown, or am I, do I have enough B12? Where's my iron? Where's my stress load? How can I kind of adjust these next six weeks? Can I push a little bit harder? 
or do I need to be a little bit more conservative with my training? Other times, if you're really feeling off, you know, a lot of athletes tend to be more in tune with their, their body than the average person. Like last October, I mean, there was no racing, but I was hiking in the high peak region of the Adirondacks in New York. And, you know, I was with my girlfriends and I was huffing and puffing up the mountain. I was like, okay, I really haven't been training that much, but like, this shouldn't feel this hard. So I got a test afterwards and my ferritin had dropped to 10, which is like very, very low. <laughs> the, the bottom goal is at least, you know, <laughs> 40 for me. So I was like, okay, this is right. Like I need to increase my supplement dose that I was taking and adjust from there. So, you know, anytime where you're really just feeling that you might be struggling, it's good to kind of check in on those numbers as well. Okay. So getting a baseline test and then maybe doing it either when you're not feeling very well or before like your main event of the year. And you mentioned six weeks, like how long does it actually take to see some movement in these biomarkers? Every biomarker is different. Of course, um, (laughs) there's no (laughs) simple answer. So, you know, if for most people, you know, from that kind of looking around our season, typically tell people to, you know, wait at least three months. So usually three to four months is kind of the sweet spot because like, if you're looking to improve your, for example, your cholesterol levels, you're going to want, you know, three months of a concentrated effort to kind of see the, the needle move, but something like we're looking at muscle recovery and breakdown. If you're using it as a tool in your season, you should be able to see those numbers, hopefully improve in a shorter period of time they move a little bit more quickly than other biomarkers and like, you know, B12, you could see, you know, if it's low and you can identify it six weeks out from a race, you can make an impactful change on that level, usually through supplementation at that point to see it increase before you head into your main event. Yeah. So there are some things that can change relatively quickly Mm -hmm. to help you perform. Yes. Yes, exactly. Performance wise. Yeah. But certain, certain things, like I said, like that lipid panel, you want to give a little bit of time. If we're not really, you know, like I said, using it around racing or an event, usually every three to four months, if you can, um, I tell people at least twice a year at a minimum, just because like you said, yeah, this baseline information is great, but we're taking these actions. We want to see if these actions work. Um, it's always a little bit of a journey of guided self-experimentation. Mm-hmm. Like I added in turmeric curcumin supplements to see how it helps with my creatine kinase because I had never done it before. And I kind of changed up my training routine. And I was like, Oh, let's see how this works. We'll just give it a shot. You know, mm-hmm. I haven't retested since I started, so I don't have any feedback on oh, that. Yet. I was hoping to hear some results. <laughs> No, but how I changed my iron supplementation has given me excellent results. I kind of dug out of that 10 to a 26 with everything else in check. So I was very happy with that for sure. And what, what did you do? So I've actually started taking my iron supplement after my workout in the morning because I read a new research paper about hepcidin levels, which is um, a compound associated with inflammation and that they found in this study with female runners that if the runners supplemented with iron within 30 minutes after finishing their morning workout, they saw an increase in ferritin levels because that hepcidin compound and inflammation was low for that 30 minutes post-exercise. And then it continued to rise throughout the day. Oh, that's a great tip uh, for people to try. Yeah. So that was, that was, it's not in an inside tracker recommendation yet. That was just from my reading and my research, 
but I have dug myself out of the iron hole because I used to take my iron supplement before bed. And then I switched it to the morning because I always work out in the morning. Otherwise it just does not happen. And I take it with a very big glass of orange juice Mm -hmm. and I've been seeing great results. So you're getting your vitamin C with your iron supplement. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. I was like, we're going to get the most out of these two little, uh-huh. these two little pills that I'm taking every day. <laughs> so my last question for you, and there might not be an answer to this, but people of all ages are athletes and we're actually seeing a lot more, you know, people doing, especially endurance sports into their sixties and seventies. How do these recommendations change or do the ranges change as people get older? Yeah, they do change. Age is taken into account. Yep. Great. Yeah, something that I learned that I thought was really interesting is that seniors actually need quite a bit more protein. Yes, absolutely. Yep, to maintain the lean body mass as we age. I know it's all about maintaining that as as best we can, for sure. So, CV, if people want to work with you one-on-one, are you taking clients right now? And where's the best place to find you? Yeah, so I will be taking clients starting at the end of September. It is now what, September 6th. So I will be taking some new clients. You can find me. My website is stevielynrd.com and it's spelled Stevie like Stevie Nicks. (laughs) Or you can also, if you're interested in my ice cream cones and sometimes my (laughs) vegetables, but mostly my dog, you can follow me on Instagram at Stevie Linlin. So it's S-T-E-V-I-E-L-Y-N-L-Y-N. Like I said, a lot of dog content. He's very cute though. (laughs) I love it. And yeah, just make sure to check out InsideTracker.com to listener if you're just curious about some of the things we've talked about. And even if you don't want to do an Inside Tracker test, Stevie's given us so much information on how to optimize our health and performance. So thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to that amazing episode. I even learned something. I learned something every episode, which is a great thing about being a podcast host. I'm so grateful for your time and attention because I know there are thousands and thousands of really good podcasts out there. And I'm hugely honored that you're listening to mine. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I'll see you right back here next week.